Welcome to a special episode of the C-Suite podcast that we're recording in partnership with Banking Circle at Money 2020 US, taking place at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, we're on the Banking Circle booth in the very busy expo, and I'm going to be chatting to a number of the speakers and attendees from the conference. And so we hope that through these short conversations, we'll be able to provide you with a real flavor and understanding of the topics and issues being discussed here at the event. So I'm joined by Aaron Walner, a CMO of Quantic uh, Bank. Um, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. This one really intrigues me. Earlier this year, you launched the nation's first wearable payment ring. How does that work? What's the technology behind it? Yeah, it's a simple tap, right? And so I think that uh, we've evolved the past couple of years from swiping to dipping to tapping. Uh, do we need another way to dip or tap? Um, we thought we, we thought yes, and so we created this wearable device in the form of a ring, and so if you hover over uh, a kiosk with this ring, you just paid. And so people love it, um, it's super cool, and uh, it's been really well received. That's the next question I wanted to ask you, you're the CMO, how have you been marketing it? What's, what, what's been the real reaction to it? Yeah, um, the cool part about the ring launch was that well, the, there's one example that sort of demonstrates the, the success that we had found. We, we didn't plan for this initially, but uh, a big part of the campaign was influencer content, right? So we uh, you know, put out a bunch of uh, paid influencer type content, very sleek, hit the mark, good stuff. What far outshined that was the user-generated content. So the early adopters, the first thousand or so people that were walking around the US with a ring on their finger paying for stuff, they were filming it. And so the people, smoke, yes. people, people behind the counter were like, what's that? People behind you in line, what's that? And this very organic conversation uh, and coverage began to emerge on social platforms that, again, far outshine the, the paid stuff. And as a, as a marketer, that's kind of the dream. That's great. Sticking with technology here, you've also recently opened a virtual bank in the metaverse. Yes. Why did you do that? And, and kind of what's the experience that it, that it offers the customers? Yeah. Um, I'll start with the latter part. It is not a full banking experience be because it can't be yet, right? So the metaverse is still more conceptual than, than real. Uh, Decentraland is one of the two most popular platforms. So we set up shop. Uh, we bought two plots of land. We designed this incredible building that's neoclassical and has got this concrete foundation with graffiti on it. It's super cool. It fits us as a brand. And it is a bank. You can walk in and interact with it in different ways. One of the ways that you can interact with it is through the ATM. If you go up to the ATM and hit it, this bank vault, the sort of secret bank vault opens up. You can go into the back where there's this kind of this pool party scene and there's free NFTs. So it's a cool interactive educational experience that we invited our customers to kind of enjoy and really imagine with us what could the future of banking be virtually in, in, in the metaverse. And so you can't bank there today, but you will be able to in the future. Um, you also talk about this idea of non-monogamous uh, banking. What do you mean by that? Yes, um, we came up with a handful of phrases. I think that's our, our favorite currently. Okay. The concept is this, right? Uh, how many apps do you have on your phone for banks or financial services? A bunch, more than one for sure, right? Um, and so more than half of the people in the United States have more than one banking relationship. We wanted to lean into that. I think that a lot of our competitors in the digital bank space, they want to have your wallet, be front of wallet, these sort of aggressive concepts, right? Forget all that. We're okay being your side bank. We're okay being in a non-monogamous relationship with you, right? You can keep your Chase or Bank of America or Wells because they play a role. We can do that too, but we're not asking you to you know, jump ship entirely. 
we have a bunch of really incredible accounts like high yield savings, that's best in class. And so whatever account that we offer that's sort of additive and fits your portfolio and your needs, come on board. How has your customer uh, base changed you know, over time? And, and what does that say about the adoption of digital banking, would you say? Uh, older, in a word. So, okay. um, and I think that tells us a lot. I think initially, a few years ago, if you close your eyes and picture a digital bank customer, you probably have a picture of a younger, sort of tech-first, savvy type person. Um, that's certainly still the case, but our average bank customer is close to 50 now. And so what we've seen is this transition from, it's less about how tech-savvy are you, because we're all online. So an online bank is just not as intimidating as it was in, let's say, 2015. And that's great, everybody wins, right? The bar's been lowered and more people are adopting. So we're past that sort of initial stage on the curve. And so we love inviting people regardless of age and whatever. But overall, it's really been interesting to see our, our customer base kind of grow older. Final question for you, and I know this is not the first time you've been to Money 2020 here in Vegas, but from this year's event, what's going to be your key takeaway? Then? Yeah, I think I'm really watching uh, how folks talk about regulation. Um, I think that um, without saying it, I think people are a little spooked. I think a lot of the fun, innovative stuff that has cropped up over the past five years specifically, it's now time for maybe Washington to pay more attention. Um, and there's a lot to be determined there. So I think that it's not that the party's over at all, it's that what's next. And I think there's a little bit of anxiety around that and there's a little bit of a pattern that I see here. Aaron Warner, thank you so much for joining us. You got it. So joining me now is Jessica Turner, Executive Vice President, uh, Global Open Banking and API at MasterCard. Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, now you were speaking earlier today on a session titled Open Banking and Beyond, Building the Future of Financial Services. How did that go and what were the kind of key highlights from that? I think it went really well, actually. Um, it was exciting to see the amount of people interested in open banking. The key highlights were really about how we're just getting started with open banking how really it's a transformational shift in the financial services world, but even bigger than that. It's really a transfer, transformational shift in data overall. And the reason I believe that is because open banking is about permissioned-based data access. That really opens up a ton of different use cases. And so in the session, what I focused on was where are we in the phase, which I think is in the innovation phase, and then how do we get to scalability and stability as an industry? Because if we do that well, there's trust, there's the right assets, the right programs, all boats rise, and that's how real innovation happens. And, and that's why I do believe it's, it's really a seismic change in the way we operate. And is there any kind of specific way that you guys define open banking at, at MasterCard? So we define open banking at MasterCard as consumer or small business permission-based data connections, data exchange, for the use of third parties to be able to re re reference that data. There's also open finance, which extends kind of beyond a traditional bank account. And then people often talk about open data. So open finance might be wealth, retirement. Open data could be utility usage. And really open banking is the start of how we continue to evolve into that. Right. And I mean, you, you, you touched on it just a second ago. We, you know, we're at this kind of early market phase at the moment. Are there any um, kind of types of solutions or, or use cases that, that you're seeing here? Absolutely, it's different by market. So in the US, the U.S. is an unregulated market uh, today. We, a lot, often people talk about open banking and they think about the U.K. with PSD2 in Europe. 
Um, but the U.S. has very much been focused on what are the commercial needs. And those have been around account opening, so making it really easy digitally to open an account end to end. About payments, being able to make different types of payments, including ACH, but with enhancements so that they go through better um, and they have really just more viability overall. Um, lending is a remarkable use case. Consumers and small, business kids, small businesses can allow access to their data and then gets clean and categorized and then lenders can look at that data and they can make different decisions, really providing more capital and lending power out to consumers and small businesses. Uh, and the fourth one, fourth one I would say is um, small business in general. So most of open banking has been focused on the consumer to date. Um, we're very focused on small business because having access to more lending opportunities and easier onboarding is critical. Uh, and so those have really been the use cases. What you see in Europe and UK is it's been very much more about data exchange, personal financial management, and payment. But just getting started, there'll be far more innovations to come, but those are the use cases that are rising to the top now. Just got one last question for you. I mean, you know, just taking a look around Money 2020 here, what's been your key highlights so far? The amount of people at Money 2020 is unbelievable. I've been coming to 2020 for a lot of years and for a lot of different products during my time at MasterCard, um, but the energy is real. And people are really locked into tangible and meaningful solutions, whether that be through fraud or payments, different applications. Um, but there's so much excitement about open banking and data exchange at this session. Um, that it's just, it's, it's very exciting. Um, but the energy is, is remarkable. That's great. Jess Turner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I'm joined here by uh, Nelson Chu, founder and CEO of Alternative Investments Platform Percent. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Nelson. Um, before we talk about your company, just explain what we mean by alternative investments. So alternative investments is really something that doesn't quite fit into the traditional 60-40 model that used to dominate all of your investment allocation strategies for the longest time, right? So not stocks, not bonds, and so it's going to be things like private credit, which is what we play in, which we can talk about in a little bit. It could be collectibles, it could be you know anything of that sort that has come to the forefront, especially since COVID hit, wherein people were looking to actually diversify well beyond the traditional investments, because there's just more returns, and the 60-40 model in many respects is kind of dead at this point. Okay, so let's hear a little bit more about Percent then. How are you helping in this whole kind of space? Yeah, so private credit in particular is really interesting. It's something that I would say most people have interacted with before, but they never actually realized. So anything from taking out a student loan with SoFi or doing buy now, pay later with a firm, those are all technically private credit back when they were still private companies, obviously. And so in that instance, it powers so much of the global economy and, and people just don't recognize that, that actually is the case. So it's powering different various types of loans that happen in the industry, whether it's uh, consumer loans, small business loans, equipment leasing, factoring invoices, litigation finance, you name it, it all fits under the $7 trillion private credit umbrella. Um, and it all came to the forefront after the global financial crisis, when the banks stopped doing this type of lending. So in this instance, uh, private credit operates almost exclusively off of Excel, phone calls, and emails today. Really, really archaic. And our job is to be able to kind of take that 
and create technology, workflow tools, and everything that this marketplace needs to be able to transact and do it in a much more efficient manner. And we've done that over the course of the last three and a half years that we've been around doing these types of deals. That's fantastic. And you've already gone through Series A funding, is that right? We've gone through Series A funding, and so it's been a very exciting time for us, and uh, we're well positioned to take advantage of what's going on next in the market over the next few years as a result. And, and on that note then, I mean, how big is the market for alternative investments? Alternatives is massive. I can't even think, begin to quantify it, but at least in our space in particular, which is already massive for private credit, is yeah. $7 trillion. And so, enough to go around in that instance. <laughs> um, is there a particular type of business that this might be attractive to? Yeah, so we have almost like three clients in some respects. We have the borrowers who need the debt capital. We have the investors who want to earn a return by investing in these debt products. And we have what's called underwriters who are responsible for sitting in between the borrowers and the investors to be able to create these products. And so all three sides are clients of ours using our technology to get more efficient uh, and do deals faster and better than they could before and more profitably. Uh, but in this instance, the ones that people would most readily recognize would be the borrowers who need debt capital, the SoFi's and Affirms of like five, six years ago before they turned public, and the investors who can invest directly on our platform and earn a return right now when the stock market isn't really doing all that well. They're still averaging this year, I think year to date, we're recording this in, in October, we've paid out, I would say, probably eight to 9% in returns to investors. So well above the S&P, which is down 16%, I want to say, right. give or take. We hear a lot of talk about potential recession, you know, potentially looming. What impact might that have for, for private credit? Yeah, I think we might be in one depending on how you define it well. economically. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, so for private credit, it actually is one of the most recession resilient asset classes. And okay. you follow the smart money, right? Blackstone, Apollo, Aries, KKR, they've all been putting money into private credit because they recognize that that is going to be what survives and thrives during a recession because it's backed by assets. Transactions still need to happen. There is no kind of liquidity freeze in that instance, right? At the right price, there will be a price taker and, a pri and someone will be willing to bite on it. Um, so I like our chances and I like what private credit can do. And I think investors are recognizing that there's a lot of potential now more than ever and a lot of asset classes had their heyday prior to this recession, it is definitely private credit's time to shine. One final question for you, Nelson. What's been your key takeaway so far from Money 2020? Well, apparently there's not really a recession, given the amount of uh, <laughs> companies that are here and you know how busy it is. Uh, but I think it is going to be a very interesting time um, for a lot of these startups who are here to navigate a high-rate environment. I don't think a lot of them have done it before. Uh, most of these companies are sub 10 years old, give or take. And so we'll see how that happens. And it'll be on the founders, I think, to you know make hard decisions and see how they're going to be able to figure it out, turn profitable, because free money, unfortunately, is no longer here for the long term. So we'll see how it goes. Nelson Chu, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm now joined by Julian Alcazar, a senior payment specialist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, and Nikita Agarwal, a postdoctoral fellow at the UCLA School of Law. Thank you both for joining us. Julian, you just moderated a session that uh, Nikita was a part of alongside uh, Catherine Adkins of Affirm. Um, this was on a new hope on credit, buy now, pay maybe. Um, what were the highlights from the conversation? We got a really good insight into how Affirm thinks of their role in the buy now pay later space, how they approach their product and service with each consumer, and how they really lean, leaned into regulation. And so everything they do comes from that lens, which is great. Um, that's what we want. Uh, we want responsible innovators in the ecosystem. So I think that was one of the highlights for me. And then seeing a lot of my old colleagues from the CFPB and the Fed. Nikita, can
Can you talk about the advantages and the risks associated with buy now, pay later? Clearly, access to lower cost credit has advantages in that it you know, enables consumers who otherwise were not able to uh, you know, fill a financial shortfall to do so at lower cost and smooth consumption. So there are obvious economic and social benefits um, to credit that is genuinely more affordable. And it's true that many buy now, pay later credit products are cheaper than higher cost alternatives like credit cards uh, in many cases or payday lending or other forms of credit. I think the concern is when that that promise doesn't really play out, right? And it, you know, we've seen in other markets that, for example, consumers can take on too much debt. Uh, credit can become unaffordable, and it might be that it's, it was unaffordable at the outset, um, or that it becomes unaffordable due to some, some sort of in, income shock that was not necessarily foreseeable. Um, and so, you know, when that happens, the people who are most vulnerable are those with the, the sort of thinnest um, kind of safety. Uh, net those with the least to fall back on and so you know lower income families and so there's just a concern that that people may be getting in to too much debt and the concern is sort of particularly acute because of the nature of many of these buy now pay later products the way they're structured and the way they're designed so designed they're structured to have no upfront interest and um, they're very and they're designed in these very very fancy savvy um, digital apps which makes it very easy um, to basically take out a loan um, and not and buy something without really paying the full price up front. Um, and you know what decades of behavioral psychology has taught us, and it's pretty apt that we're having this conversation in Vegas, is that design can be manipulative, right? Um, manipulation by design, as it's called. And so the concern would be that consumers who are not necessarily prone to sort of more, more deliberate thinking, or more, uh, who are less likely to, to think more deliberately um, and might be more easily tricked into um, buying something with credit, even though they can't afford it, are the ones who stand to be harmed the most. Yeah, very concerning. Um, Julian, how important is the role of algorithm commerce in buy now, pay later uh, transactions? It is really important because there's this, as Nikita mentioned, behavioral part to shopping the algorithm itself can actually start nudging consumers into irresponsible spending. And instead of managing their debt more effectively, they start spiraling out. And so these nudges that used to be for good consumer behavior are now nudges towards irresponsible spending, overextending yourself, buying more than you need, or the sense of stacking debt as well. That's why this is so important. Nikita, you published a paper recently that, that um, explores the growth of buy now, pay later, um, but specifically on social media. How concerned are you about that trend? So it's not so much um, the growth on social media, but um, what social media platforms can tell us about um, buy now, pay later. So we, sure. Yeah. yeah, so in the sense that, you know, buy now, pay later is social media, but it, in, in we were looking at social media content to understand consumers' experiences with Buy Now, Pay Later. And I should say that, you know, we focused on one platform, TikTok, okay. um, and one Buy Now, Pay Later lender, Klarna. So it's not really representative, it doesn't, of all, of the whole industry, right? Um, and it was a small sample that we looked at. But I think, you know, it was at least enough for us to think that not everything is rosy um, in this market. Um, there are definitely consumers who are complaining about 
basically being unable to afford their Klarna loans um, and also others who are sort of you know, complaining, or at least on TikTok, um, voicing concerns that they didn't realize that, you know, this is going to catch up on them or that they've now got too many loans and that they're getting all these notifications. Um, there were also complaints because of the nature, the structure of the arrangement, where it's sort of a tripartite arrangement between the merchant, lender, and the consumer. There, there's, a, there's a bunch of issues around what happens when you return a product. Um, you don't get the refund um, until the uh, buy now, pay later lender has been refunded by the merchant. So it puts, basically puts the consumer in a holding pattern that can take a long time. So many complaints about that. Consumers describing also some strategic behavior, how they're, for example, taking a prepaid card, which you can use, only filling it with enough for the first installment, and then just, you know, um, that's it. And so that's also worrying. Um, it's yeah. interesting, a, a platform like TikTok, which kind of you associate with fun and entertainment, yet can still have such an influence in, in this area. Well, TikTok is kind of just, you know, a way of being now, right? Yeah. And for a particular demographic, especially so. And we're seeing, you know, you open the news, you listen to the news any day, TikTok, it's, without fail, TikTok is being mentioned. It's become, it's the new, it's the main platform of, for a creative expression, cultural expression, and for that demographic, Gen Z particularly. Um, and so I think it's only actually to be expected that uh, we would find evidence of this generation's experience with credit, credit being a large part of, of you know, the economy, um, on TikTok. I feel that uh, TikTok has now become that new public square, right? And what's odd to me is that it used to be you go to your parents for financial advice, like, what should I do here? And then it used to be that I'm going to Google what, how should I get a credit card? But now it's become I'm going to look it up on my TikTok app, I'm going to look it up on YouTube and get some influencers' perspective on what I should do for my financial life instead of going to pillars of authority. So places like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the FDIC, the Fed, all that have consumer education tools on how do you on-ramp to credit. You recently published some research around data aggregation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so data aggregators play this, they, they play this connective tissue as it relates to open banking. And data aggregators allow fintech companies to connect with established financial institutions, which is excellent because it allows consumers a broader set of tools at their fingertips. However, there are dangers as it relates to data aggregation because there's still a practice of screen scraping, which is a very unsecure way of gathering consumer data. And it also bogs down a bank's system because the, the bank isn't able to discern the difference between this is a consumer logging into their account or this is a FinTech app logging into their account. So that screen scraping is probably the most concerning to me. If we start shifting to a more structured API model where there is set permissions, uh, rules of the road of what information you can access and for periods of time, I think that's better. And that's what certain data aggregators and then industry-led efforts like FDX are, are starting to make happen for the industry and, and push it to this more equitable playing field. I just got one last question for you both. What's been your key takeaway so far from Money 2020 here? 
I mean, this is my first time at Money 2020 and I haven't been to Vegas in 20 years. So just, it's like really overwhelming, uh, exciting, um, I think for the most part to see how many people are innovating in finance. And I've had conversations with people just with so much excitement to do something new and, and not necessarily in an entirely new space. Like there's just a constant stream of enthusiasm. But then to couple that with the location where we're in a casino, just for me is like so meta that I don't really know how to describe it. Julia? So this is now my fifth Money 2020 and I am in my element. Like this is... is in the conference or the casino? <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, because the conversations that it's a it's a full contact sport, right? And it's those conversations, those one-on-ones, where it's just that one word, that one sentence, that gives you such insight that can change your perspective. Um, an overarching theme that I've seen so far to, to, between yesterday and today and throughout the conference is that we all seem to be battling with how do we identify the consumer, what is identity, and how do we fight fraud. And so those two things seem in equilibrium because you should be able to fight fraud if you know who the consumer is, but fraudsters are also very intelligent, so they're able to come up with new ways of fraud. And so that's that's the overarching theme that I'm getting today. Maybe we need a, a whole new podcast on, on that whole topic, just, just that alone. Um, Julian Alcata, uh, Nikita Agarwal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Russell. Thank you. So I'm joined by Anusha Ramanujam, a global head of network at Square. Um, Anusha, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you spoke earlier with uh, Vivin uh, Ramamurthy from Uber, um, where you were exploring the use of alternative payment methods. Can you just give us an overview of uh, what your conversation was? Absolutely. We just finished our session. We talked a little bit about why alternative payments are so important and what's the need for them. And we also talked about while consumers are driving the increase in alternative payment methods, it's really businesses and earners who are driving the increase in accelerated money movement and why that's so important for cash flow management. So you just touched on that there. Yeah, consumers kind of shifting towards less traditional payments. We're obviously seeing a rise in, in this alternative ways to pay. How, how is this space going to evolve, do you think? I feel like alternative payments are not optional anymore, hence the title of our session. Yeah. Um, so everything about, you know, everything from bank transfers, pay with your bank, buy now, pay later, in digital mobile wallets, e-invoices, all of these are various ways, QR codes, they're all various ways of paying with, um, you know, different from traditional card payment methods. And Square offers a variety of both traditional payment methods, but also increasingly alternative payment methods. Think about Afterpay, Cash App Pay. And from an international perspective, we feel like APMs are even more popular because if there are forms of payment that are not card or not cash, those are winning with consumers even more. So look at Paytm in India, it's just taken off. QR codes and e-money in Japan, those have taken off. We operate in Japan, and we want to make sure that for buyers to not have to think about what they're paying with, and for the sellers to never miss a sale, we offer a variety of alternative payment methods. Suica, ID, QP, PayPay as QR codes. So alternative payment methods, like I said, are not optional anymore. They're here to stay, and businesses would do really well to pay attention to this rise and offer more and more alternative payment methods. Do, do you think then, due to this kind of growth, it, 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 
is that going to have an impact on small businesses? Absolutely. Over the last 10 years or so, consumers have shifted away from swiping cards to payment methods that are more convenient, they're more contactless, they're more take money out of my bank account so I know and I have control over that. So QR codes, there's a study, like in 20, by 2025, roughly 29% of global phone users, for context, that is 2.2 billion people, will be using QR codes as a mode of payment. So businesses would do really well to pay attention to this rise in alternative payment methods for two reasons. One, so that they can offer flexibility, and two, so that they can be relevant for all types of consumers. How is Square working with small businesses in particular then? So small payments are the foundation of our ecosystem. They are the heart of commerce. We want to make sure that sellers never miss a sale. So we want to make sure that we can offer them compelling services, compelling payment methods so that they never have to worry about missing a sale. And they don't have to worry about telling their buyers like you can only pay it this way. We offer a variety of cash flow management techniques, everything from they can move their money their way with instant transfers, they have a home for all of their business finances with Square Banking, with Square Checking, they have a Square Debit Card. So it's all about making sure that they can access their funds instantly, they never have to miss a sale because they can offer a variety of alternative payment methods and ultimately they can meet their consumers where they are. That's great. Um, final question for you. What's been your key takeaway so far from Money 2020? So I feel payments is a very integral part of so many aspects of our life. And I'm not saying this just because I've been in payments forever. I think if you have a growth mindset, payments is a field that will teach you something every single day and literally every single day. And this is for all companies. Um, if you can find points of friction or drop off where there's like some sort of like a redirect where their consumers are falling off, and try to embed relevant financial services as it makes sense into those payment experiences. So embedded finance is huge. Embedded finance is here to stay. And it's all about making sure that those friction points are removed and businesses are meeting this. And companies, fintechs are offering this, both for sellers as well as for consumers. And um, again, alternative payments are not optional anymore. So that's another takeaway. Anusha Ramanujem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm thrilled to be joined by uh, Sunil Madhu, CEO and founder of Instant. Uh, let's get a quick intro to the company. Sure. Um, Instant's basically a customer acceptance platform. It's fully managed and basically it helps businesses sign up more good customers without friction or fraud loss. And obviously banking is, is one key uh, area, but you're across other industries as well. We're we are focusing on financial services primarily though, okay. but we can be used in healthcare, education, federal and state government use cases. Anywhere where you need to accept a good customer and you don't want to worry about having to deal with fraud. Now, you guys have been very busy here. We've seen you everywhere <laughs> around the, co well, the conference. Kudos to our marketing department. <laughs> um, you launched uh, Instant Access. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. So uh, the Instant platform allows businesses to sign up and onboard new customers. And we've been helping a lot of financial institutions since we launched two years ago, credit unions, banks, uh, fintechs sign up good customers and we've typically helped improve signups by 150% every quarter over quarter. Now we listened to our customers and they said, can you help us solve this other problem about friction? Often within financial institutions and other businesses, 
that are selling multiple products. You've got to sign in and sign up multiple times for each of these products. As an example, when you go to a bank and open up a new bank account, you have to sign up. Six weeks later, you want to get a credit card from the same bank. Guess what you have to do? Sign up again. And when you get a loan, you have to sign up again. Now, this is because each of these different uh, lines of business have their own risk and uh, compliance processes for the products they sell. That's one of the reasons for it. And the other is they are all operating in silo. So we decided it'd be nice if we could eliminate the need to do those multiple sign-ups and sign-ons. Wouldn't it be great if businesses could put their products and services within one click of the customer? So that's why we created Instant Access. It's an overlay technology. It's a line of code that you can literally add on any website or mobile app. And it's based on an open interoperable standard called verifiable credentials. What it means is when I go through that initial sign-up and my information is verified, KYC checked, and fraud checked, and I've been given the rubber stamp, the green stamp to enter, the system, our system, issues the user a pass called a verifiable credential. It's an open standard ratified by the W3C last year. And this credential is cryptographically secure, and it's signed with a key pair that's generated for you, the user. Uh, that key pair exists in an embedded wallet component in any mobile app the business has. So in essence, a pass is generated containing all of the personal information that I supplied to that business signing up for that product that was verified and accepted and approved. All of that information of mine is signed and uh, encrypted with my own keys and the business seamlessly pushes that into my wallet residing on my mobile device without me having to do anything special, right? What's been accomplished right there is something called decentralization. The financial institution took the step of not storing my information anymore, but giving me control of that information in the form of a verifiable credential, which is like a pass, and it has an expiration date in it, and it has the proof that whomever receives that pass can use um, to verify that it's in fact my data that I'm presenting, and it, that data has been uh, validated and KYC checked by um, uh, the issuer and verifier, which in this case is instant. Um, and that's because when we issue you that pass, the key that was used to sign that pass, the public portion of that key, is escrowed by us in a public blockchain. And we use IBM's blockchain for this, uh, called Hyperledger Open. Uh, so anyone can go to the Hyperledger uh, uh, blockchain, pull my key there and say, was that key used by Sunil to sign this document? Or oh, it looks like it has, so it has to be Sunil's data. Now with that pass, you can then go to any other product or service from that business or any other business that supports verifiable credentials. And instead of going through that whole sign-up process all over again and getting treated differently from different institutions for different products and have a consistent user interface, because all I have to do is scan a QR code or click a link. When I do that, my wallet app wakes up magically and says, hey, this website's asking me for your name and email. You're familiar with the Facebook login and uh, you know, Google login, except that this comes with a trust binding with it, right? So I say, I click yes for consent, and magically, the next thing I see on the website or mobile app is I'm inside the app. I've not had to sign up all over again, and the best part is because the solution is built on top of our platform, 
we do indemnification for fraud losses. So we're the only vendor in the whole world that allow you to shift loss liability for fraud from your business to us. So you have not only the assurance uh, that the person is who they say they are and they're fraud free and so on, but if any fraud were to happen, you're protected against the liability. And meanwhile, you've made the whole experience for the customer frictionless. That's Baking your cake and eating it too, really. How long has this taken to bring to market? Um, so the standard's taken several years to get yeah. ratified. It was ratified last year. We've been working over the last year and a half with our existing customers to fine tune it. And we decided to give users an actual go at it uh, to get a feel for how this technology works by uh, playing a little game. It's like a treasure hunt game, follow the bunny and Yeah, that's what you've events. been doing here at the that's event, right. isn't it? So yeah. at Money 2020, we decided to allow people to download an app that we created for the game yeah. using our toolkit. And the idea was they register to the app with their name and email and phone number. They get this verifiable credential pass, which then unlocks a bunch of different things that are exclusively going on in Money 2020. And so far, we've had hundreds of people actually sign up and use it. The statistics are awesome. That's great. We've had people going to different events and showing passes. And the bunnies are a huge hit, so that's a plus. Tremendous. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about all this, where do they go? They go to www.instant.org. That's I-N-S-T-N-T. There's no A. The joke is that we onboard customers so fast, we drop the A. Listen, Sunil, we've been asking everyone this uh, final question. What's been your key takeaway from Money 2020? Money 2020 is a great place to meet customers, partners, do deals on the floor. So there's a lot of productivity that happens in this event, all crunched into three days. Sunil Madhu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that wraps up this episode from Money 2020 US. So thanks again to all my guests who took the time to chat with us over the last couple of days and to the team at Banking Circle for partnering with us and hosting us here on their booth. Um, we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on any of the topics we've covered. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, uh, you can do that on our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn and Instagram pages. They're all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com. Uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well. Um, or, of course, you can connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>